The old pilot's plain tales. Operation Tarnical. The Soviet-made Aleutian transport was quietly motoring west, away from Damascus at 10,000 feet, out over the Mediterranean Sea. For the high-ranking Egyptian officers on board, the flight was comfortable enough. The lights in the cabin were turned on so that people could walk around and talk. Suddenly, the black of the night that had surrounded them was split open by bright tracer cannon fire that streaked past the windows with loud cracks, and then the shock and thud as some struck the aircraft. The lights were all extinguished, so in the dark, tense and alarmed, Everyone waited to see what would happen next. It was the 24th of October 1956, and the first shots in a war had just been fired. But to understand a little more of why this unarmed transport was being attacked, we need to go back a little over 100 years. The story begins when Ferdinand de Lesseps, a French former diplomat, persuades the Viceroy of Egypt to permit the construction of a shipping canal through 100 miles of desert between Africa and Asia. The trade route from the Far and Middle East to Northern Europe was long and dangerous. It took thousands of miles as it wended its way around the continent of Africa, the southern tip of which saw two vast ocean currents meet in a tumultuous cauldron of mountainous waves and fearsome weather. The Frenchman's suggestion was to form a company to construct a canal that would join the northern end of the Gulf of Suez to the Mediterranean Sea. Passage through the 120-mile-long canal would save ships some 5,500 miles, and the charges that could thus be levied would be considerable. Construction took some 10 years, and the cost was shouldered between France and Egypt. However, large debts built up by Egypt required them to put their shares up for sale, and Britain purchased them for £4 million. This new route gave the British Navy and merchant vessels a shortcut to its empire and to the oil fields of the Persian Gulf, so Britain was at pains to protect it. During the First World War, 10,000 British troops beat back the Turkish army, an ally of Germany, and drove them deep into the Sinai Desert. By 1922, Egypt was independent of Britain, but a provision had been made to allow British troops to remain in the Suez Canal zone to protect this vital asset. In the meantime, Europe again was at war, and for a second time Britain would commit forces to defend the canal, first against the Italians and then the German Africa Corps. The canal was almost lost until Montgomery launched a major offensive at El Alamein, which forced the German-Italian Panzer Army into retreat. In the post-war period, there was an upsurge of nationalism in Egypt. The newly elected Nationalist Party revoked earlier treaties, and attacks on the British garrison protecting the canal soon followed. There were riots in Cairo of an unprecedented scale, culminating in attacks on British property and the expatriate community. 
Britain responded by threatening to occupy Cairo, which prompted King Farouk of Egypt to dismiss the leader of his government. But then, in July 1952, the king was overthrown in a military coup. The military refused to give up power in Egypt, and by 1954, Colonel Gamal Abdul Nasser led them. He had three goals, to make Egypt independent by ending all British occupation, to build up Egyptian forces for a successful attack on Israel, and to improve Egypt's economy by constructing a high dam at Aswan to irrigate the Nile Valley. A new treaty was signed and British troops were withdrawn from Egypt. As the last British troops left, NASA was completing the purchase of Soviet-made aircraft, tanks and arms from Czechoslovakia, which would help him to realise another of his goals, the destruction of Israel. The United States, concerned at the growing Soviet influence in the area, had courted NASA so much that they came to view him as a CIA asset and they had welcomed the overthrow of King Farouk and encouraged anti-British and French attitudes. NASA had played both superpowers against each other, gaining Soviet weapons when the US balked at the idea. In return, the United States withdrew funding for the High Dam project, and NASA responded during a speech in Alexandria when he used the name of the man considered the father of the canal, Ferdinand de Lesseps. It was a code word which initiated military action to seize control of the Suez Canal, implement its nationalisation and block the Gulf of Aqaba in violation of multiple agreements. NASA immediately closed the canal to Israel. The British government was in uproar. This was seen as a direct threat to their interests and the French government immediately began meeting secretly with Israel, later inviting Britain to join negotiations aimed at regaining control of the canal. Many countries were reluctant to anger Nasser, and others, particularly Arab nations, supported the move as an admirable act of anti-imperialism. Despite the threat to Israel, the United States refused to cooperate with any intervention. The French, British and Israelis wanted Nasser out. The British position was obvious. The French held the Egyptian president responsible for assisting a rebellion in Algeria and was nervous about Nasser's growing influence in North Africa. Israel wanted to reopen the canal to its shipping and saw the opportunity to strengthen its southern border whilst weakening a dangerous and hostile state. On the 29th of October 1956, retaliation began. Ben-Gurion ordered his chief of staff to attack Egypt. However, the night before, a very secret operation took place that was intended to kill the head of the Egyptian military, called Operation Tarnagal, Hebrew for rooster. The success of this operation rested on the shoulders of one man, an Israeli fighter pilot called Yoash Sidon, nicknamed Chato. 
Chateau was used to dangerous missions. He had been a fighter in the Palmach, an underground army of the embryonic Jewish nation. From the age of 17 and after the War of Independence, he enrolled in the first pilot training program in Israel. Trained as a combat pilot, he had made the transition to jet fighters and in 1955 was assigned to lead a squadron of night fighter all-weather aircraft using the Gloucester Meteor NF-13. At the time, Britain was the only country who would sell jet fighters to the Israeli Air Force. When Operation Tarnagal was devised, Chateau was in England, completing his night fighter training but he was urgently recalled to the Israeli Air Force headquarters for a briefing, only to discover that the very next day they would be at war with Egypt. Israeli intelligence had learned that Egyptian and Syrian military chiefs were conducting talks in Damascus and that all the senior staff of the Egyptian Army, Navy and Air Force were participating, including Marshal Abdel Hakim Amar the chief of staff of the Egyptian army. Trusted intelligence sources had reported that the Egyptian delegation was due to return to Cairo that very night on an Aleutian IL-14. His mission, Chateau was told, was to bring down that aircraft. The significance was obvious. If Chateau could destroy the transport aircraft, the Egyptian armed forces would be decapitated, left without a military staff and a supreme commander on the eve of a war. The outcome of the entire campaign might hinge on his success. The head of the Air Force, Colonel Shlomo Lahat, told Chateau that he should get airborne in his meteor fighter and wait overhead Damascus for the Aleutian to take off, and then attack. But Chateau disagreed. If he were discovered, he could be shot down, and if the target was delayed on the ground, he might run out of fuel waiting. Knowing that the IDF special units would be monitoring communications, he asked if they could advise him when the transport was 30 minutes into its flight and over the Mediterranean, in range of their radar units. He would then launch and intercept it. His commander looked at him in surprise, but eventually told him to do what he thought was best. Chateau knew it was going to be a difficult mission, so he insisted on having the best navigator he knew, Shibby Brosh. Before long, he had been flown to Ramat David Air Base, where his fighter sat waiting with Shibby, already doing the flight preparation. Night fell, and at around 10.30 the news came that their target was airborne, and being tracked towards the coast. It was just inside the meteor's range and heading for Cairo at 10,000 feet. Chateau and Shibi launched into the night. All of Israel was dark and there wasn't a trace of moon in the sky. With their cockpit lights on red and turned down to a glimmer, they headed out, listening to their controller guiding them to the intercept point. Then came the first problem. Chateau's drop tanks weren't feeding into the main tanks and, just like that, they'd lost 700 litres of fuel. They were now useless dead weight, so he jettisoned them into the black ocean below. Then came Shibby's excited shout, Contact! 
His radar had the target only three miles away, same altitude. He called Chateau into a turn and slowly and carefully brought him in behind the illusion, but despite Chateau's keen eyesight, nothing could be seen in the inky darkness. The careful instructions continued. Eleven o'clock, seven hundred feet, descend five hundred. Then, as Chateau strained his eyes slowly, he began to make out a dark silhouette and then the faint glow of red-hot engine exhausts. Eye contact, he reported. His commander replied on the radio that he wanted a confirmation ID of the target. Confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt. Understood? Chateau acknowledged, and with the utmost care, as his airspeed was very low, he manoeuvred to the side of the transport until he could see into the windows. They were large and square, unique to the IL-14, and in two rows on the side of the cockpit. What's more, inside the cabin, he could see people in military uniforms walking in the aisle. He had now used up an extra ten minutes of precious fuel, but he had confirmed the identification. You're authorised to open fire, but only if you have no doubt whatsoever, came the reply. Even with his flaps down, Chateau was still very close to stalling, so he gingerly manoeuvred back behind his target, lined up the sights and fired. As his 20mm cannons bellowed, all hell broke loose. He was immediately blinded by streaks of intensely bright magnesium burning in his ammunition as it streaked away. Someone had loaded his aircraft with tracer rounds. Simultaneously, his meteor flicked onto its back and began to gyrate downwards. He was spinning. With his night vision ruined, he fought to get back onto an even keel and clamber back up. What had gone wrong? The NF-13 night fighter Meteor, with its large Westinghouse air intercept radar in the nose, left no room for the weapons there. As a consequence, the four Hispano cannons were repositioned well out on the wings, outboard of the engines and a long way from the centerline of the aircraft. When Chateau fired, the left cannons had roared into life, but on the right side they failed. Being so close to the stall, the uneven force had stalled and yawed the meteor into a spin. Clambering back up to 10,000 feet, although the illusion was now dark, Chateau could see flames coming from its left engine, and it was flying much slower when he was only a hundred feet away, even with his restricted view, Shibby in the back realised he could see both wings of the illusion. We're going to hit it, he cried. His shout probably saved them both. At the last second, Chateau squeezed the trigger again and suddenly found himself in the midst of hellfire. His shells exploded into the illusion, barely a few feet from the muzzle of the meteor's cannons. Fire engulfed the Egyptian plane, shooting across it at the same instant that an explosion transformed it into a fireball. Flaming debris flew past the meteor, and the burning Egyptian plane spun and dived, but so did the meteor. Both aircraft plunged down. 
A fireball and a meteor spun one beside the other, Chateau recalled, both out of control, as if performing a sickening, surreal dance. This time it took him longer to regain control, barely a thousand feet above the ocean. As he finally raised the nose, he saw the Aleutian smash and explode into the waves of the Mediterranean. Climbing gratefully back up away from the sea, Chateau and Shibby reported their kill. His commander wanted to be sure. You saw it crash? Affirmative. It crashed. Then Chateau glanced down at the fuel gauge and was horrified. I'm low on fuel. Very low, he said. Give me directions to the closest base. A radar unit found him and gave him a heading to fly. I'll fly in that direction as long as I have fuel, Chateau replied. The meteor crew faced a dilemma. With no ejector seats, they would have to bail out manually, so would need a couple of thousand feet to be sure. Once they were below that height, if the engines ran out of fuel, they were going to have to ride the crippled aircraft into the ground. The fuel gauge dropped zero. One minute, two minutes, three. Suddenly, Chateau could make out the lights of the Hatsor runway, which had been turned on for him despite the blackout. He eased down towards the tarmac and touched down. As they trundled down the runway, first one and then both engines failed, the last drop of fuel consumed. You did it? Chateau was asked. Yes, he replied. So the war has started. At headquarters, the chief of staff, Moshe Dayan, was waiting for them, and he looked grim. They shook hands. What's the problem? Chateau inquired. At the last minute, Amur decided not to fly on the Aleutian. He's going to take off later in a Dakota. The spirit of battle overcame Chateau. If there's time, we'll refuel and go out on a second run, he offered, and Shibi nodded in agreement. It would be too obvious and would expose our intelligence source, Diane said. Let's leave him be. The moment you wiped out the general staff, you won half the war. Diane pulled out a bottle of wine. Let's drink to the other half. Thus, the 1956 war had begun, yet only a handful knew. Operation Rooster would remain top secret for 33 years. The Egyptians never reported the downing of the aircraft, probably because they weren't aware it had been shot down and thought it an accident. On the 5th of November, the Anglo-French assault on Suez was launched. It was preceded by an aerial bombardment, which destroyed much of the Egyptian air force and grounded the rest. Soon after dawn, the British Parachute Regiment attacked El Gamil airfield, whilst French paratroopers landed south of the Raswa bridges and at Port Fouad. Within 45 minutes, all Egyptian resistance on the airfield had been overcome. Very soon, more objectives were attacked by Royal Marine Commandos, together with British and French airborne forces, supported by British tanks, which soon defeated the Egyptian forces, capturing men, vehicles, and many of the newly purchased Czech-manufactured weapons. 
the attack was a complete military success and the canal was secured. Politically, however, the intervention in Suez was a disaster. US President Eisenhower was incensed. It was his belief that if the United States were seen to support the attack, the resulting backlash in the Arab world might win them over to the Soviet Union. World opinion, led by America, eventually forced Britain and France to withdraw their troops, but Israel refused without guarantees being agreed. His health shattered, facing opposition from the British people and with his political credibility irrevocably damaged, Sir Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister, resigned. The French Prime Minister survived longer, despite fierce criticism, and his government finally collapsed in June. Nasser, on the other hand, would remain in power for a further 14 years until his death from a heart attack in 1970. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And my thanks this week to Nia Bendov from Israel, whose idea it was to cover this story, and who was invaluable in translating recordings of interviews done in Hebrew. If you enjoy Plane Tales and would like to help the podcast out, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.